0: Tonight we come to the last book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation. And note it is the book of the Revelation. There is no S at the end of the word. There are many revelations in it, but it is the revelation. And verse 1 of chapter 1 actually captures quite well what this book is all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly or quickly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. If you look on the very first page, as we quickly note the overarching aspects of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. Sometimes you hear people call it the apocalypse, and that's fine. They're just transliterating the Greek word. It does mean a disclosure, an unveiling, a revealing. And actually, the preposition that you find there in verse one could be translated as a revelation from Jesus, a revelation about Jesus or revelation belonging to Jesus Christ. And actually, it is all of those things. And perhaps John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was purposefully ambiguous. The theme of the book is the majesty and glory of the warrior Lamb of God. Indeed, no book in the New Testament exalts more wonderfully the person and work of Jesus Christ than does the book of revelation and he is the lamb of god a word that is mentioned lamb 29 times in the book but he is a particular kind of lamb he is a warrior lamb a conquering lamb a lamb who is king and lord and so his majesty and his glory is the theme that runs through the 22 chapters the author is the apostle john the same one who wrote the gospel of john and the three letters of john its date is in the last century, uh, last decade of the first century, somewhere between A.D. 90 and 96. And its purpose, well, I believe there is a divine outline in chapter 1, verse 19, that builds upon chapter 1, verse 1 to show us those things which must shortly come to pass. And I will note that in just a moment. Also, this is the only book in the Bible that has a direct promise of blessing. For those who both read it and obey it in chapter 1, verse 3. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I do think chapter 1, verse 19, provides an outline for the book where we are told that John is to write the things which you have seen, which is the great vision of chapter 1, the things which are the seven churches of the Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall be hereafter, Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation 22. So it does look to the past, the present, and also the future. If you look on page 2... I have again provided a structural chart for you, and I will be honest with you, this was the difficult, of uh, the most difficult chart that I put together for this particular book and looked at a number of uh, New Testament surveys and commentaries. And it is not an easy book to uh, outline in terms of the details, though again, if you look at the very top, I've shown you that three overarching outline again, things you have seen, well, that's chapter 1. The things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches and the seven letters to the seven churches, and then the things which will be hereafter. In essence, chapters 4 and 5 are transitional because they provide a vision in heaven, emphasizing in chapter 4 that God is the creator, chapter 5 that God is the savior or the redeemer, and then follows the three great series of sevens in terms of judgment. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, but also... Also, it's interesting to note, if you look at the bottom of the page four times in Revelation, you also see the phrase in the spirit. And so some commentators have said that you could outline the book around chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 1, then chapter 4, verse 2, through chapter 17, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 3, through chapter 21, verse 9, and then chapter 21, verse 10 to the end, building it around the four times that John is in the Spirit. And interestingly, every time he's in the Spirit, he is moved to see a new vision. And so in some sense that complements and almost fits quite well, but not exactly the outline that we see at the top of the things which you have seen, which are, and things which will be hereafter. And also it's interesting to note that two particular words dominate the book of Revelation. One is the word Lamb occurring 29 times, and the other is the word Throne occurring 44 times, causing some Bible teachers to refer to it as A throne book, and of course, who sits on the throne, but the warrior lamb of God who is king of kings and lord of lords. Now look at page three, and we're going to move quickly through some of these issues because you have only a 15-page handout this evening. First of all, authorship. Well, the traditional view is that the apostle John, the son of James, both of whom were sons of Zebedee, was the author of the final book of the Bible, and there's very good reason for affirming that. First of all, the author calls himself John, the slave of Jesus Christ, in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 4. He uses the phrase, I, John, in chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 22, and verse 8. And there's no other qualification, so it's assumed that the people readily know which John this is, and of course it would be most likely to be a man of authority, a man well known to them, a man greatly And indeed, that's what I think we have here. Furthermore, at number two, the external evidence for Johannine authorship is both strong and early. Justin Martyr, and this is really the, the crucial one, Irenaeus, also affirms that John is the author. Now note, Irenaeus knew the man by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a personal disciple of the apostle John. And so Polycarp would certainly have known if John wrote it. And since Irenaeus knew Polycarp, what he says, I think, could be deemed quite reliable. And so as I say there, this is very significant evidence that would argue for the Apostle John being the author. And then the internal evidence, well, there are a number of things here. He knows and is known fully by the seven Asian churches. He prophesies in his own name and is conscious of divine inspiration. There are similarities in the description of John in the Synoptic Gospels. And the Revelation, there are similarities between Revelation, the Gospel of John and the Johannine epistles. And so you would say, basically, the evidence seems to be pretty strong. Well, yes, but. And it's not just liberal scholars who question whether or not John was the author. Actually, most of your modern arguments from liberal scholars that is against John, the apostle, being the author, can be traced back to the third century and a man by the name of Dionysius of Alexandria, who is as you see at the top of page four, denied the apostolic authorship of John based upon a comparison of Revelation with the Gospel of John. I might also add that he seems to be, and some later uh, teachers who followed him uh, also seem to not like certain aspects of the book of Revelation and therefore kicking John out as far as the author would have been to their advantage. But Dionysius doesn't deny that uh, Revelation is Scripture, but he does say, I don't think it was written by the Apostle John. And when you look at the Revelation and the Gospels, there's just too many differences. For example... He says they're linguistic, stylistic, and conceptual, or idea differences. In other words, John and Revelation are really quite different. Well, the fact is they are quite different, but there are also significant similarities. And the difference in genre probably accounts for much of the differences. You say, what do you mean by that, Danny? Well, John is a gospel. John is kind of a straightforward narrative and discourse concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. In contrast... Revelation is apocalyptic. It is highly symbolic. It is the only apocalyptic book in the New Testament. And if you're writing in that kind of genre, that kind of style, it is going to be a different kind of book than, say, the letters of Paul or the Acts of Luke or Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It'd be like, for example, me sitting down and writing, for example, a commentary uh, of a very scholarly sort. Uh, well, maybe not too scholarly, but at least trying to be scholarly on the epistles of John. Turning around over here and writing a popular book on the Song of Solomon called God on Sex. Now, I would defy you to read those two books, removing my name as the author and thinking, well, the same guy wrote these two books. You wouldn't think that at all. There are no funny stories in the epistles of John commentary. There are tons of funny stories in the uh, Song of Solomon book. Furthermore, the Song of Solomon book is what? Poetry. It's a love story. Uh, the, the Epistles of John is a letter written because of the danger of false teaching. And those two books that I wrote are very, very different. Why are they different? Because they're different kind of literature, different purposes. And so that kind of argument really is quite weak. But it was the main argument set forth by Dionysius. Then some say Revelation contains marked or marked grammatical irregularities in comparison to John's gospel. My response is, you're right. There are uh, significant differences grammatically, but I think we can account for these by one: there's the nature of apocalyptic literature again. Two, the fact that John may have had a secretary, an amanuensis, when he wrote the Gospels and the Epistles, but most certainly he did not have this when he wrote Revelation. Why? Because he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. In other words, the most uh, uh, the strongest New Testament evidence was that John was free when he wrote John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so most likely he could have had some assistance in writing that book. Revelation, number one, is completely different kind of literature. And secondly, he's on the island of Patmos, a rock quarry, as an old, uh, aged man, uh, as a prisoner. There doesn't seem to be anyone there except him, and therefore that would account for some differences as well. Number three, the author of Revelation makes no claim of being an apostle. Nor does he allude to the incidences in the gospel or to having known Jesus Christ in the flesh. Thus it is argued, he could not have been an eyewitness, i.e. an apostle. Response. The purpose of Revelation is eschatological and apocalyptic. One would not expect it to address the Jesus who walked with the disciples for three years. No, he's addressing the Jesus who is at the right hand of the throne of God, who is the Lamb upon the throne, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, risen, ascended and coming again. That's a different Jesus than the one who walked in humility, God incognito for the three years of his public ministry. Number four, the differences between Revelation and the other Johannine literature far outweigh the similarities. But actually, Revelation is probably more like the Gospel and Epistles of John than it is like any other of the books in the New Testament. Fifthly, there is a conflicting tradition regarding the date of the Apostle John's death. The stronger tradition says John lived to a very old age at Ephesus, but another tradition claims that he was martyred at the same time as his brother James, or at least before A.D. 70. However, these latter traditions are very weak and are not the more defensible position. But saying all of that, page 5. Some alternative theories on authorship. Well, some have said there was a guy named John the Elder who must have written different books than the Apostle John. Some claim, like R.H. Childs, a third John, John the prophet, because he said, well, the epistles to John... Go to the elder. The gospel of John goes to the apostle. So we've got to have a third John. We'll make him John the prophet. And then the third one is is the fact that someone unknown to us appropriates John's name to give greater weight to his uh, writing as I point out there, this view raises more problems than it solves and there's little evidence to support the view that the early church would have accepted a false writing. So in conclusion, I think we're on very good evidence, have very good evidence and on very good ground of saying John the Apostle, the Apostle whom the Lord loved, wrote the gospel that bears his name, the three letters that bear his name, and the final book of the Bible, the book of the revelation, that was the strong view of the early church. The internal evidence is also strong, and the issues and problems that are alleged, every one of them can easily, I think, be answered and Responded to. So, when was the book written and from where? Well, the traditional view is that Revelation was written from the island of Patmos, according to chapter 1, verse 9, which is an island in the Aegean Sea about 70 miles southwest of Ephesus. John has been exiled here during the latter part of the reign of Emperor Domitian, who ruled from AD 81 to 96. Therefore, this would place the writing around AD 90 to 96. Um, many scholars believe, and I happen to be one of them, that John was released i don 't think John died on the island of Patmos. I think he wrote the revelation. I think he was released, and my own view is that it is possible that he wrote the epistles of John actually after revelation, or certainly he may have written the epistles of John in terms of second and third John after revelation, so that though revelation does fit appropriately as the last book of the New Testament chronologically, it may not actually be the last one. It is possible he went back to Ephesus, dies a natural death, but before he does, he writes one, two, or three of the epistles. But we can't be dogmatic. It's possible he wrote the epistles earlier. Goes to Patmos, writes Revelation, does get to come back to Ephesus. He's now so old, so weak, he's really not capable of much. He's there, he's loved, he's di- he dies, and then he basically is buried there and his life, comes to an end. But again, I note at the bottom of page 5 and the top of page 6 that there's really pretty good evidence for the fact that this is the better time, of uh, the better uh, dating of the book, as well as the better location. I do point out again, alternative views, that some want to date it just, just, Just in the latter part or just after Nero's reign, who was emperor from A.D. 54 to 68, they would then date the book between 66 and 69. Others want to push it to another Roman emperor emperor by the name of Vespasian, who is during this period of 70 to 80. But again, the external evidence and also the internal evidence, I think, points again to the Domitian dating of A.D. 90 to 96. That's where most uh, evangelical scholars continue to date The book of revelation destination well that's easy the immediate destination is the seven local churches that are mentioned in chapter one and verse four as well as verse 11 these are the same seven churches that are addressed individually in chapter two and in chapter three so he's writing to the seven churches of uh, asia minor then also we need to understand though the book has a representative character And some of you may know what I'm talking about here. Some of you may not. If you don't, don't feel ignorant. It's just something you haven't looked at yet. It's very popular among a certain strand of dispensationalism to believe that chapters two and three, the seven churches, represent seven different ages of church history. I don't accept that. I, 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 uh, I respect many who hold that view. In fact, it's my understanding that David Jeremiah still holds that view. But that is a view that most dispensationalists no longer hold. One of the reasons I don't hold it is I have to do the very thing I'm always arguing against. And that is it goes against the natural, historical, grammatical interpretation of the revelation. Furthermore... If you take the seven churches as representing seven periods of history, well, really what you need to say is it's representing the seven periods of Western Christianity. And you're basically saying, hang the rest of the world. God was just interested in what was going to happen in the Mediterranean and European world. Well, I find that to be rather um, myopic, short-sighted, inadequate. And so I think you have seven churches that get seven letters, and yet I do think, The character of most churches in some form or another is represented by those seven churches. Not in terms of history, but in terms of type. So that you have a missionary-minded church. You have church under persecution. You have a church that's got its doctrine as straight as this center aisle. But as he says to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Oh, you're doing everything right, but you're no longer doing it for the right reasons. And if you don't get your act together... I will remove your candlestick, your effectiveness. And unfortunately, we do know that by the third and fourth centuries, the church at Ephesus has basically disappeared. And so I do believe that it is representative then of the types of churches we find at large in the world today. Now, why did John then write Revelation? Well, the occasion at the bottom of page six. John records that he wrote his book at the direct command of the Lord who appeared to him, chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 19. Interestingly, this is the only instance in the New Testament in which a writer states this as his reason for writing. Number two, the historical situation facing the churches, in particular these seven, and the church as a whole was an important factor. First of all, Persecution from without, secondly, compromise from within. And actually, I think John was more worried about the latter than the former, that compromise within is far more dangerous to the church than persecution from without. Then top of page 7, there is also a prophetic purpose. A prophetic revelation of Jesus Christ is what we have here in terms of his future final triumph as Lord of Lords and the ethical implications of this for the present. In other words, when you study through the Revelation, you should not simply be working through the book. You should not primarily be working through the book trying to figure out, oh, what is going to happen at the end of the age? You should be going through the book asking the question, what impact and difference should this make in my life right now? in terms of the certain coming again of Christ and His rule and reign as King and Lord. Unfortunately, virtually every generation since the first century has worked very hard to try to say, you know, these things in Revelation, they're being fulfilled right now in our lifetime. And boys and girls, all those generations have one thing in common. They were all wrong. Every single one of them. So, for example, if I'm teaching through the book of Revelation, I will maybe raise some hypotheticals such as, you know, if certain events in our world right now were to begin to come to fruition, you could see how potentially that might be fulfilled in Revelation. But then I always quickly add, but you know what, guys and gals, Jesus may not come back for another thousand years. He may not come back again for 10,000 years. And so I am not going to go into this book and tell you who the Antichrist is, who the false prophet is, what specifically are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, because you know what? I don't know. And I got news for you. You don't know either, and neither does anyone else. So when you find someone saying, aha, here it is, it's being fulfilled right now before our very eyes, I will tell you what, warning signs go off all over the place for this boy up here. Because there's a long, 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 long track record of those who've gotten it wrong again and again and again and again. What you need to be asking again is, all right, he wrote this book not only to encourage people in the first century, but to encourage people in every century. He wrote this not only to warn people in the first century, but to warn people in every century. What is he encouraging me to do and what is he warning me about as well? And so you see there, number one, under letter B at the top, it would help the original readers understand their own times in light of the victorious and triumphant future, but it would also help all future generations of Christians as a message of hope to counteract spiritual deterioration, to encourage perseverance, and to fortify them with the assurance of Christ's ultimate victory. I'll never forget that uh, my former colleague at Southern Seminary, Bob Stein, brilliant, gifted New Testament scholar, especially in the Gospels, uh, was telling me that on the mission field one time, he had the opportunity to engage some Chinese Christians who had uh, been very active in an underground church. And so he was curious, and so he said, I want to ask you a question. What is your favorite Old Testament book? And what is your favorite New Testament book? And he said he was stunned by their answer. He said, because he thought, well... Old Testament, oh, I bet they go for the Psalms. New Testament, well, maybe one of the Gospels. But, hey, how about, you know, they're under persecution. How about Philippians? Tells you to have joy. Maybe Romans. It's such a great doctrinal book. He said, no, to his amazement, their favorite Old Testament book was Daniel. Their favorite New Testament book was Revelation. And he said, why? And they said, because we learn from these two books Our God wins. Well, you know what? If your life is daily being put on the line and your family could suddenly be snatched from you and taken out of this world into the next, knowing in the end God wins probably is very important. And so to his amazement, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel were the books that they found the most encouraging And the most helpful. And I find that to be very instructive and probably uh, helpful to us as well. Now, literary structure of the book. Just note quickly, Revelation is actually a combination of three literary types. It's apocalyptic. We've already noticed that. It's actually said to be a prophecy in chapter 1, verse 3. And also it has the characteristic of an epistle because of chapters 2 and 3. The seven letters. The seven churches its characteristics well there's rich representative symbolism much of it drawn from the Old Testament some of it explained some of it not explained I suspect that God had his reasons for not explaining some of it top of page eight the revelation is full of Old Testament images language and allusions there is not a direct citation from the Old Testament however if I remember correctly there are 404 allusions to the Old Testament and something like 285 references to the Old Testament. Yet there's not a single time where he does like in Matthew. This is this. No, but 404 allusions, 285 references. That means the book is steeped in the Old Testament. And you say, well, which ones? That's easy. One is Daniel and the other is Zechariah. The third one is Ezekiel. So the three books that just died the fourth one is Psalms. So Daniel, Ezekiel, or excuse me, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Psalms are the books that dominate the, as far as the source or the stuff out of which John drew to write this particular book. Then number three, the book has a one-world outlook, a world united in rebellion against God, over which he will triumph and establish his sovereign rule on earth. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, both in judgment and victory. And the unity of the book, the traditional view, is that it is maintained. Some object to it. There's not a good argument for that. Special problems of the book, then, bottom of page 8, the literary structure of the book. Again, I think we do have a divine outline in chapter 1, verse 19, the things which you saw. The past, the things which are, 2 and 3, and the things which shall come to pass, chapter 4 through chapter 22. In other words, I personally believe that Revelation 4 through 22 is still yet to be fulfilled. I don't think it has happened yet. I don't think you can point to a place or a time and say, here's this, here's this, here's this. No, I believe that the events of 4 through 22 are yet in the future. I also happen to be one that believes they will be fulfilled within a seven-year period of time. I do hold to a seven-year period of tribulation that will take place right before the second coming of Christ to the earth and the establishment of what is called His millennial kingdom upon the earth. Also at number two, the intended relationship of the three series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and bowls, is highly debated. Top of page nine, I point out that I hold to what is called a partially concurrent view. You say, what in the rip does that mean? Well, look over on page 11, and you'll see a chart that shows it to you. Basically, I'll use the stage up here and tell you what I think. The three series of judgments are the seals in chapter 6, The trumpets in chapters 8 and 9 and the bowls in chapter 16, all right? Here's what I think. I don't think they happen 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 seals end. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 trumpets end and then the seven bowls. I don't think that. I also don't think like some people think that the first seal is also the first trumpet, also is the first bowl. The second seal is also the second trumpet, is also... The second bowl. I don't think that. What I think is this. You have the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, the fifth seal, the sixth seal, and then the seventh seal, interestingly, is empty. But it's not empty. Because I believe the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. Then you have the first trumpet, the second trumpet, the third trumpet, the fourth trumpet, the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, the seventh trumpet. But interestingly, guess what? The seventh trumpet is empty, but it's not, because inside the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. So the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, is the seventh trumpet the seven bowls, which means what? Are the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls? Which means this. If that is correct, then as the judgments begin to unfold, they begin to happen more rapidly and with greater intensity. In fact, some people have referred to the seals as the judgment of force because a fourth of things are kind of taken out. The trumpets as the judgments of thirds because a third of things are taken out. And then the judgment of bowls, everything that's left is gone. So it seems to me even there, things are getting worse. You go from wiping out a fourth of things to a third of things to everything. And so I think because of that, In my own judgment, following a seven-year period, I think the sixth seal comes about the midpoint of the tribulation. I think the seven trumpets tend to probably unfold in years four, maybe five, and six. I suspect that the seven bowls will happen in a matter of months, possibly even a matter of weeks. It is not beyond the pale of possibility that they happen in a matter of days. So as you move toward the end, things happen more quickly and things also happen with greater intensity as well. Now, if we someday, either Brother Bill or myself or someone else walks you through Revelation, then you can look at that in some detail. But I just throw that out there for you so at least kind of have an idea of what that would involve. All right. So I make note of that on page nine. Make note of the issue of the Revelation in terms of the millennial kingdom. If you look at page 10 for just a minute, got to watch our time here. One of the other big questions you have to ask yourself is, all right, what is the best interpretive approach to the book of Revelation? And you come to seminary, and we'll teach you. There are four, praetorism, idealism, historicism, and uh, futurism. And I expect my students to be able to know those four and sing those four back to me on an examination. Brother Kai, you must have done that when you had me for New Testament 3, or perhaps even systematic theology 3. So, absolutely. So here's the deal. Praetorism, unfortunately, in my judgment, is making a comeback because someone as popular as R.C. Sproul is a praetorist. Now, I like some of the things he does. I don't like his five-point Calvinism in its extreme form, and I think he is an extremist in his form of Calvinism. But secondly, I think he's dead wrong in terms of his prophecy and his understanding of eschatology because praetorism says, "We'll just go by basic theses. All the events of Revelation were fulfilled during the days of either Nero or Domitian. Thus, the book of Revelation is concerned only with the events of the first century. You say, well, wait a minute, Danny. Jesus comes back in chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 16. That's right. And R.C. Sproul argues it's already happened. And he argues, like most praetorists, like Gary DeMars and Gary North, Rush Dooney, he's dead now. But that whole dominion theology group... Uh, argues that Jesus came back in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So Revelation 19, uh, 11 through 21, which gives you the second coming of the rider on the white horse to the earth, that is the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, how you get that out of that, I have no idea. But that's what praetorism has to do. So all the events were fulfilled in the first century. doesn't really have any real relevance for us today or in the future. The second view is called the historicist view. Revelation is a panorama of church history from the initiation of the first century, the apostolic age, to the consummation of the age. So in other words, we would be today, who knows, maybe somewhere in chapter, I don't know, 12, 15, 17, somewhere along the lines. You say, well, how come you don't know? That's the problem with the view. No two historicists ever agree. In other words, they are trying to pick out right now in Revelation, you know, 4 through 19, events that have unfolded in church history, which, by the way, was the view of Luther and Wycliffe and some of the other reformers. It just doesn't work. No no two historicists agree. Well, if no two agree, there's probably something wrong with that particular interpretive approach. The third view is idealism, and that is the view that's always popular among liberals, although not every liberal is an idealist. For example, J.I. Packer is no liberal. Now, in fact, I commend very much to you his book, Knowing God, Keeping Step with the Spirit, a number of other things he wrote, but J.I. Packer is a millennial. So J.I. Packer is an idealist, and J.I. Packer says this, well, the apocalypse is not to be seen as a representation of actual events, whether past or future, but the book is viewed as symbol or metaphor to depict the great struggle between good and evil. And, of course, in the end, uh, good wins. And so as far as Packer is concerned, there not, will not necessarily be a future coming Antichrist. There's not necessarily going to be a future uh, false prophet. Uh, the seal, the trumpets, and the bowls don't really think in terms of one of these days, a fourth of the world being wiped out, later a third of the world being wiped out. No, 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 no. All that's just highly symbolic to let you know evil and good are constantly in conflict with each other. But it's okay. In the end, good will win. Now, you say that's oversimplifying that view. Not really. Not really. That really pretty much bottom line is where the idealist, the millennialist, is coming from. I'm a futurist. I'm also premillennial, which is the belief that Christ will return to usher in a millennial age on the earth prior to the eternal state of Revelation 21 and 22. That view says what? Beginning with chapter 4 or 6, the events described belong to the future age and constitute a marvelous prophecy of God's program for the consummation of the age. You say, Danny, who are some people that hold your view? Billy Graham. Uh, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, uh, Paige Patterson, W.A. Criswell, Adrian Rogers, Jerry Vines. I keep going for like a really long time. Now, it's very interesting. Prior to the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, there was not a single futurist on the faculty of Southeastern Seminary, not one. They were all idealists and they were all all millennialists. At Southern Seminary, a true, blue, consistent futurist, there were none. Closest one, I guess, would have been maybe Dale Moody, who was premillennial. Beasley Murray was premillennial, but still, nothing like a consistent futurist. Even at Southwestern Seminary, which was more conservative, when I went to Southwestern, most of my professors made fun of people who were pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. That is, the rapture could happen at any time with Christ catching the church up in the air. And even if that's not your view, the idea that Christ will come back to the earth, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, there then will actually be a thousand year reign of Christ on this earth, reigning from Jerusalem, fulfilling the promises that God made to Abraham, that God made to David, that God made in the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They said all of that is symbolic. God's through with the Jew, all the promises to the Jews have been transferred to the church, and therefore, nothing like that is going to happen on earth. That's where Southern Baptists were in their seminaries, and yet, interestingly, in our churches, and again, Kai would know this, Brother Bill would know this, those of you that studied at the seminary, most of our people in the church were Schofield Bible or Charles Ryrie study Bible people. I mean, my goodness, Schofield notes, that just inspires the Bible, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't, but... That's pretty much where our church is amazing. In fact, when I, and I'm i getting off here, but it's kind of funny. I had a guy at Southern Seminary that was a true blue liberal. He was still there when I got there in 1996. I tried to be nice to him. He's kind of a smart aleck. And so one day he just rubbed me the wrong way. I just couldn't help it, but he kicked me off. But I still didn't act ugly, not too ugly. I looked at him, and I said, and his name was Danny, too. I said, Danny, you've been teaching at Southern Seminary for what, 12 years? He said, uh-huh. I said, how does it feel to know that you haven't made a dent on the churches of our convention? That they don't pay attention to one thing you teach? Well, that kind of offended him, which I thought it would. And he kind of bowed up on me and said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, knowing you as I do, when it comes to your, you've, you've got a degree in theology. Yes. You've taught theology. Yes. So certainly you're a millennial. Well, yes. So you don't believe in a future millennial reign of Christ. No, in fact, I'm not even sure you probably believe if he's really coming back to the earth. He didn't answer the question. He just said, well, what's your point? I said, my point is this. Right or wrong, 95% of the people in the pew are pre-millennial and pre-tribulation. Right or wrong? Would you all disagree with that? No, it's 95% are pre-mill, pre-trib. I said, so you're, you're all millennial? So you're completely out of step with, oh, let's see, about uh, 13 million Southern Madness. So how does it feel to know? that they don't pay you the time of day when it comes to your influence on their theology and their thinking. And he got blood red in the face. Now, I said, see, the problem with all you liberals up here at Southern is that you were out of touch with the churches for all these years. You weren't listening to the people in the pew, right or wrong, about what they believed, where they were, and that's why your tail is about to be kicked out of here in Jesus' name, of course. <laughs> and sure enough, he moved on, and now he teaches that at a, where all liberals go now, all liberals go to Texas now or up to Wake Forest, but he's now at a seminary out in Abilene. Serves him right. I mean, I'd I'd almost rather go to that other place than West Texas, but that's a whole other question about a whole other day. But my point, again, is simply this. This is where we have been as a people in terms of our popular theology. It is not where our teaching was in the seminary. In fact, when Paige Patterson came to Southeastern Seminary in 1992, he was probably the first president ever of any of our six seminaries who believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial eschatology. The first one. First one. Now there's at least two of us, maybe three of us. I don't know where Chuck Kelly is, whether he even has any. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure he has a theology, but I don't know where he is. But I know there are at least two of us now that are pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, that head our seminaries, one being myself and one being Paige Patterson. Well, very quickly, I then on page 12... Just listed, I thought you'd enjoy having a chart that lays out for you the three series of seven judgments and the content that you find in each of them. So I'll just let you have that on your own. Then also on page 13 and 14, I gave you a very quick overarching run through revelation and overview that is built around those four visions I mentioned earlier about uh, being in the spirit and being taken to a particular place and I tried to make it as helpful as I could so that you can see under vision 1 on page 13 I gave you a brief statement as to what the Lord Jesus was saying to each of the seven churches such as Ephesus he says remember your first love and to Philadelphia at F he says rest in the promise of God they were the missionary church under persecution and to the lukewarm church Laodicea repent from your indifference then vision 2 shows that Christ is the Christ of the cosmos he is the one who reclaimed The earth for his kingdom, and there you have unfolding much of the judgment of the great tribulation. Then on page 14, Vision 3, you have Christ conquering and judging the great Babylon harlot, both in terms of a religious and a commercial system. Then in Vision 4, the Christ of consummation, you've got a beautiful description in Revelation 21, verse 9, and following of heaven, uh, of the new Jerusalem the new earth, the new heaven, and then the book actually ends, interestingly, with a great, wonderful invitation. He invites the church, he invites the world, and he invites individual believers to come to him. All who will come to him, he indeed will receive them. And then on the last page, I gave you an outline of one of my favorite chapters In the book, perhaps my very favorite chapter, Revelation chapter 5, which talks about the Lamb upon the throne in heaven, that Christ is Lord of history, that Christ is Lord of victory, and that Christ is Lord of glory. And perhaps the key of the text, I will just note as our time runs out, is there in verse 6 and 7 that Jesus Christ is the Lord of victory. What does it say? I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne... And of the four living creatures, angelic beings of worship, in the midst of the elders, representing the redeemed of all the ages, I believe, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The word slain is in the perfect tense. The word stood is in the perfect tense, telling us he still bears the marks perpetually of his sacrifice. And also there was a time in the past when he began to stand... He is standing today, and as far as you look into the future, the Lamb will always be standing very beautifully and picturesquely. The word slain looks to His crucifixion, and the word stood looks to His resurrection. And then you have just an interesting descriptive phrase, that if this is all I had in the Bible, I would know that the Bible believes in the full deity and teaches in the full deity of Jesus He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horns in the Bible often symbolize strength. Seven, perfect. You put together perfect strength. What? He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. Seven eyes. Eyes see. Eyes are the primary means whereby you gain what? Knowledge. Eyes, knowledge. Seven, perfect. Put them together. Perfect knowledge. Omniscience. All-knowing. Seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. You know there are not seven spirits of God. There's only one Holy Spirit of God, but the number seven speaks of His perfect, complete fullness. So through the fullness of the Spirit, He goes into all of the earth, all of the earth, telling us what? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. Well, guys and gals, only God is all-powerful. Only God is all-knowing. And only God is everywhere And so the one who was slain, but who is standing is God. And because of his perfect atonement, verse seven, he came and he took the scroll. The scroll, by the way, contains the remainder of the book of Revelation. He took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne and beginning in chapter six, the warrior lamb begins to unfold the scroll and out rolls the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the seal judgments. Then out comes the trumpet judgments. Then out comes the bowl judgments. But then gloriously in chapter 19, he himself comes again to rule and reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so as I said at the very beginning, from beginning to end, you want to know what Revelation is about? It is about the glory and the majesty of the warrior lamb who sits upon the throne in heaven. And so that's a quick survey of the book. There's a lot there, and perhaps sometime in the future, we'll take a verse-by-verse look through it as well. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us.